half hour left, so we may not get through everything this morning um, that we have that I have for you in the lesson. But I do want to take a little bit of time this morning and renew, refresh a Sunday school lesson that some of you may have vague memories of. So four years ago, not quite four years, but almost four years ago when I first visited, my family first visited here as a candidate to come and serve alongside of Pastor Patton, I taught a, a one-week Sunday school class on just basic principles for reading scripture. Some of you will remember that. Um, and I gave you a little diagram, and there's an updated version on the back, so I hope you have these two things, the, the handout for today and also the diagram. So that, some of you will remember this. Uh, I'm pleased to say that I believe it's been updated in helpful ways. I'll explain how and why. But some of you, because the reality is our church, because the way that God has blessed us with the ability to plant churches and the way that as we have planted churches, the Lord has brought new people into our congregation I'm serving right now as the clerk of our session, and according to my records, since the time that Pastor Patton and I began serving together in 2020, about 40% of our congregation is new. So that means about 40% of this congregation has never, has never heard anything about this, this lesson. So as I was working and, and re-studying these materials over the last six months and thought that maybe if there's a one-week window where I can just go over this material again, it might be profitable to the church, and so that's what I want to do with you this morning. If you have the card, I'll talk to you about biblical principles that are used to build this card. And so the, re the reason I want to do that is this. Um, I grew up in a Christian church. I grew up even in an Orthodox Presbyterian church. And growing up in the church, I certainly... We saw the reading of Scripture modeled and encouraged all the time. Our pastor always preached from the Bible. Um, our Sunday school teachers taught us from the Scriptures. Our families were encouraged to read the Bible. Kids were encouraged to read the Bible. So we were always encouraged, and it was even modeled, but we were never really, I don't ever remember having a Sunday school class on actually how you read the Bible. It was just not taught. It was modeled. It was inferred, implied, but it wasn't actually taught. Um, when I went to seminary, of course, I had a class on principles of interpretation, and the, and the seminary word for that is hermeneutics. Probably many of you have heard that word before. Principles for studying the Bible. But even in seminary, the, the principles that they really focused on were the principles of what's called... means that you focus a lot on the words, on the grammar, on the original languages, on... To whatever extent we can know this, the, the cultures, you know, the archaeological findings, things like that. And, and those things are not bad. In fact, they're very useful for the interpretation of Scripture. But one of the realities, a couple realities, is if you overemphasize those factors, you can actually create problems. One of the problems is, you know, grammar and historical study is useful, but it is not inerrant. As centuries go on, we learn more about the Greek language, more about the Hebrew language. We learn more about the meaning of words and their origins, and comparative linguistics teaches us a lot of new things. We archaeologists are constantly digging in the sand of the Middle East and finding new things. And so grammatical and historical analysis is useful, but it's not inerrant. Another issue that comes up when you so emphasize grammatical and historical analysis of Scripture is that you're, you're basically setting a lot of people out of the circle of interpreters. 
if, if you have, if, if, for example, if you say the only way you can learn to read the Bible correctly is if you use grammatical and historical analysis, what does that mean? How many people in this room have been to seminary? Not a whole lot, right? So are, are there only three people in this room that can read the Bible? That is not what God intended when he gave us the word of God. And so too much emphasis on grammatical and historical factors can actually undermine interpretive competence of ordinary believers, those who haven't had the blessing of seminary training. Also, it can tend to limit your use of the New Testament in reading the Old Testament. Because if you're, if you're so focused on the grammar and the history and you're reading the Old Testament, you might start falling into thinking, well, we can't really bring too much New Testament in here because we don't know for sure how much they knew at that point. And again, that's always a consideration. But here's the bottom line as far as I'm concerned. That approach to reading the Bible, especially the Old Testament, that focuses almost exclusively on grammatical and historical interpretation, the way the New Testament writers read the Old Testament. When you look at, the, when you read your New Testament, if you're paying careful attention, you'll see the apostles quoting and alluding to Old Testament passages. And sometimes if you actually flip back to the Old Testament and read it in its original context, you're like, boy, I don't know, I would have got that out of that. But Paul seems to have got that out of that. And Paul was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so he's correct. So what am I missing? This is a question that I left seminary with in 2012, you know, really, really interested in the way the New Testament used the Old Testament, really understood how this is really working, and I want to learn more. Well, in the years after that, you know, I fumbled for answers, kind of fumbling in the dark, picking up little bits here and there, putting them together, trying to put the pieces together, um, and that was, the result of that was this, uh, you know, an earlier version of this diagram that had, looks like a compass. And over the years, I updated it a little bit. I presented, I already said this, I presented one version of that here when I came to visit four years ago. And then something really, really delightful happened. Earlier this year, the session um, enabled me and supported me to take a, a doctoral level class at RTS Orlando, and the class was studying St. Augustine, a famous church father from the fourth century. And as a research paper, I asked permission and was given permission to, to study the hermeneutics of St. Augustine, how Augustine read the Bible, because I knew he read it differently from the way I was typically trained to read the scriptures. And what I discovered in doing a deep dive into the, into the hermeneutics of St. Augustine is that this question that I have been asking for 10 years, he had cracked the code on this. He had basically discovered the answers 1,600 years ago. And for various reasons that are beyond the scope of this conversation this morning, the, the church has largely forgotten what St. Augustine figured out. And so as I studied St. Augustine and the way he was reading Scripture, and I'm looking at this, you know, the early versions of this diagram, and I'm thinking, they're actually pretty similar, but Augustine can actually make this diagram even better. And so what I did as part of that paper is I updated the diagram, and I put together this lesson that I hope to share with you all today. And what I want to do is I don't want to just look at the chart and try to explain the chart, because I think if you just look at it, there's a lot of words, there's a lot of arrows. It's maybe a little overwhelming. What I want to do, though, is share with you, right at the beginning, three principles, three core principles that the Bible itself teaches us about how to read the Bible. I mean, it, wouldn't that be amazing if the Scriptures themselves taught us how to read the Scriptures? 
The answer is they do. This is what Augustine figured out. This is, he wrote about it. There are books. That, you can still buy these books, but nobody's reading them. And so reading these books, writing on these books, I said, this is something I really want to share, especially with Covenant. And so I want to go over these three core principles. And then if we have time, I'll show you how you use those three core principles to build this diagram. Make sense? So I wanna, I'm going to move a little, little more quickly than usual just because I want to try to get through as much as possible. Feel free to follow up with me afterwards you know, with questions or comments that we can't deal with. But let's, let's look at the three core principles. What are the three ideas from the Bible itself that teach us how to read the Bible? And the first is simply right there on your handout. Number one, what is the goal of all Scripture? What, why, why did God give us the Bible? What is God hoping to do in human beings in giving us the Word of God? Well, it's interesting, right? There was a time during his earthly ministry where somebody asked this very question of Jesus. What is the great commandment? And what did Jesus say? Verse right there, Matthew 22. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, we're very familiar with that, but look at the next sentence. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So what was the aim of the entire Old Testament? It, what was it aiming to do in people? It was aiming to grow in us love of God, vertical, love of neighbor, horizontal. That's not just a moral or theological principle, although it is, it also should inform how we read Scripture. When we're reading the Bible, we ought to be looking not just at the details of the text, but we should also then be moving from the details to the teachings, the doctrines of the text. And then knowing that this is the goal, worship of God and love for our neighbors, we ought to move from the doctrines to worship of God, doxology, and discipleship, love of neighbor following Christ. That makes sense? Principle number one. Right there. Jesus said it. This is Augustine. Augustine draws like, you know, they didn't have Sharpies, but if Augustine had a Sharpie, big red Sharpie circling that part of Scripture, he's saying, this is so important. How could we not get this? Cool. Is that how does love of God and love of neighbor actually break into human history in a broken world? Well, it comes into human history through the gospel right, through God's eternal gospel plan. What is the big story behind all the little stories of Scripture? Again, we don't have to guess. Jesus told us after his resurrection in Luke 24, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and faith should be taught in his name. And so friends, brothers and sisters, that tells us that behind every story that we are reading in Scripture, all the nooks and crannies, all the, the local context, historically, grammatically, all that, there is a deeper context all the time from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. And that deeper context is God's eternal gospel plan. Again, not just a theological truth, but a principle for reading the Bible, if we're going to read it correctly. In fact, Jesus says, if you're not reading the Bible in this light, you are not understanding the Scriptures. Very important. Principle number two. 
The third principle is that the core of our salvation, the, the, the core thing that God does in saving sinners is he unites us to Christ. Jesus is the head of his body, the church, and we individual believers are members of that body. John Murray, one of the founding fathers of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, said union with Christ is really the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. And if you read our catechism, it talks about effectual calling, the Spirit giving us faith and thereby uniting us to Christ. And it is from that connection with Jesus that our justification flows, that our sanctification flows, that the fruit of the Spirit begins to grow in us and ultimately that we go to heaven. And so that core idea of union with Christ, Jesus is the head, the church is the body, and we are all members of that body. Again, not just a theological truth, but also a principle for reading Scripture. Because if Jesus is united to his body, then anywhere you, in Scripture where you see the body of Christ, guess who else is there, even if he's not mentioned? The head. Where the body is, the head is. Where the head is, the body is. Does the Bible teach this? Yes, it does. 1 Corinthians 12, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Colossians 3, set your mind on things that are above, for you have died where Christ is. You are seated with him in heavenly places. That's in Ephesians. And one of the, one of the passages that Augustine loved to quote to make this point was Acts chapter 9. When Jesus meets Saul on the road to Damascus, now as Saul went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? Well, yes, but that's not what Jesus says. Why are you persecuting me? Now, Jesus was, had ascended to heaven. But the fact that, Paul, that Saul was persecuting the body of Christ, Christ said, you are persecuting me. There is such a union between Jesus and his church that where the head is, the body is, in a sense. And where the body is, the head is, in a sense. This glorious theological truth that we know, that, that as Paul says later in Galatians, Christ lives in me. And we live in him. What's that? We're inseparable, right? And that means when you're reading the Bible. That's also true. And so when you're reading passages of Scripture where you're seeing something happening to believers, the body of Christ, is Christ there? Yes, even if he's not mentioned because he's the head of the body. When you're reading a passage that's primarily about the work of Jesus, are we included in that? Did he do that for us? Yes, because we are his body. And so you see, there's just these three basic principles. Love of God and love of neighbor, the chief aim of all Scripture. The gospel story, God's eternal gospel plan as the deep story behind all the other stories. And the union of Christ with his church. You take those three principles, you can use those to build a model for reading the Bible. Now, I'm going to explain how that works, but are you with me on the principles? You're seeing that these are not just, these are not just like ideas that scholars come up with. This is right out of the scripture itself. Okay, now let's, let's flip it over, flip the page over. And now you kind of want to have this card side by side. So what you see in the, in the top right corner here is you see some text that says, okay, from details to doctrines to doxology and discipleship. That's just a reminder to us 
that we have to move from the details to love of God and love of neighbor. See that? And now, okay, on the, on the, uh, the top right, it says love of God and love of neighbor. Those are the two great goals that we're looking at. You all with me on that? Now, here's the thing. Both of those big goals subdivide into two questions you can ask of any text of Scripture. Love of God tells us that we could ask any text of Scripture, what does it teach me about God? What, what can I learn from this passage about God? If I am supposed to love God, if the Bible is supposed to help me love God, then presumably, of course, the Scripture is going to teach me about God, right? So that goes in the top box, the vertical box, God. That's one of the questions we can ask. But of course, the great event of the gospel is God coming to us in the flesh as whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. And so love of God for Christians involves necessarily love of whom? Love of Jesus. And so a second big question, this is on the right-hand corner, love of Christ. So love of God breaks down into two sub-questions. Love of God, love of Christ. What can we learn about God in general, or what can we learn about Jesus specifically? Do you see how both of those connections flow out of that top goal? That's important. The second top goal, love of neighbor. Well, who are our neighbors? Our neighbors are divided into one of two classes of people, according to the gospel. They are Christians or they are non-Christians, right? They are either in the flesh, they are man or woman, but you know what I mean. Man is a general term of reference. Or they are part of the church. And so love of neighbor, as a goal, leads us to ask these questions of any text of Scripture. What is it teaching me about man? Man as just a creature or man as a sinner? But what is it teaching me about human existence in a broken world? But then also, what does it teach me about human existence once we've been regenerated, once we've been brought into Christ, once we are part of the church? And so that's why that bottom box has a circle within the circle, right? The body of Christ, the church, but then individual Christians. Do you see that? So our two big goals, love of God and love of neighbor, break down into these four serious questions. I'm going to just pause real quickly. Again, I don't want to take a lot of side trail distractions, but are you trapped? Another thing we can do is we can take that second principle, the idea that God's eternal gospel plan lies behind all stories in the Bible, and we can use that reality to draw lines of connection between our four questions. God, well, you can also learn from that something about man. You can also learn something from that about Christ. You can also learn something from that about the church and being a Christian. How does God compare to man as a creature? I give you a little chart there. The big word there is contrast, right? God is God. Man is man. We are different. The Psalms talk about this a lot. Isaiah talks about this. Well, as you're meditating on that truth that is revealed about God, by contrast... We are not, right? God is infinite in wisdom. Is, is man infinite in wisdom? No, not at all. Does man have perfect wisdom? God has perfect wisdom. Do we have perfect wisdom? No. So even in learning something about God, by contrast, we can always learn something about man. And that's why the arrow between God and man is labeled with that word contrast. Does that make sense? Likewise, 
if we're meditating on the infinite wisdom of God, we can also learn something about Christ. Why? Because he is the image of the invisible God. He is the one who most clearly and fully reveals to us who God is. And so the line between God and Christ on your chart is labeled with the word incarnation. And so if you're reading something about the wisdom of God, you can remember. This is not just wisdom about God in general. This is telling us something about our Savior, who is infinitely wise. And when you read the Gospels, don't you see that? Jesus always knew exactly what to do, exactly what to say. He always responded perfectly to every situation, every person. And so we learn something about God. We can also learn something about what it means to be part of the church and what it means to be a Christian. The fact that God is infinitely wise is a great comfort to us as believers because God is not just our God, but what do we say every week as we pray the Lord's Prayer together? God is whom? Our Father who art in heaven. And so that wisdom, all the infinite wisdom that, that strung the universe into existence, all the infinite wisdom that upholds every subatomic particle in their spin and in their orbits, all the strength that holds together the strong nuclear force, all of that, Scripture teaches us, is aimed toward caring for his church. And so the word between God and church is the word adoption, because it highlights that fatherly care. Now, there are a couple other lines on this chart. All of this we're drawing out of the fact that the big story of the Bible is the gospel. What is the relationship between man as a creature or sinner and man as a Christian? What great change has happened according to the teaching of the gospel? To go from being outside of Christ to being a Christian, what has to happen? God has to regenerate you. God has to give you a new heart, right? And so we draw a line between man and church Christian with the label regeneration. And so if you are reading a passage of Scripture about the sinfulness and the wickedness of man, are there any of those in the Bible? A couple, yeah. Well, by contrast, it should tell us who we should not be when God has regenerated us. Or if you are reading a passage about what it means to follow Jesus in the epistles, uh, where Paul says, because you're a believer, live this way, you should see things, again, by contrast, that our unbelieving neighbors will not understand because they don't have the gift of a new heart. But you can, the, the point I'm trying to get at over and over is that if you can find the answer to one question, you can use the gospel to get to answers to all the questions. And that is so important because now you're reading any passage of Scripture as gospel, as good news, rather than just kind of random moral instructions about life and history. What is the connection between man and Christ? Well, what is the great sin? What is the great sin that, that sinners do? The sin underneath all other sins. Genesis 3, Satan says to Adam and Eve, you will be like God, right? And so the sin under all the other sins is man trying to play God for himself. Men and women trying to be God. And so that's why the arrow is labeled with the word substitution. Because man substitutes himself for God or tries to. We try to be our own gods. But the great news of the gospel is how does Jesus relate to sinners? Jesus substituted himself for us. And so that one word, substitution, encompasses the two-way street. And in fact, there's such a, John Stott, a late a pastor, British pastor from the 20th century, had such a great word on this that I, I put the quote in very small print in the bottom left 
of your card so that you remember this. Stott said, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Make sense? Isn't that beautiful? That's why it's printed on there so you remember. The last line of connection on here is the line between church, Christian, and Christ. And you see, this one has a lot of words because this is that idea of union with Christ. The Holy Spirit unites us to Jesus. We are united to him. And so we are members of the body that are connected to the head. And so when you are reading in Scripture, like you're reading in Acts chapter 8 and 9 about the persecution of the church, you know that Jesus is there with them. He says it in Acts 9 when he meets Saul. When you are reading about the work of Christ, you need to remember that he is not just doing this for others, he's doing it for the whole church. And so when you're reading about the church, you can learn something of Christ. When you're reading of Christ, you can learn something about what it means to be a Christian. Now, the last step in sort of building this chart is saying, how do we activate these things? Because we're not just supposed to read the Bible to get information, even cool information. We're actually supposed to, to make this knowledge live. Well, how do we do that? The first step is to pray the things we're learning. And so you'll see above every, above every question box, there's a longer box, and in that box is a category of prayer. So when we are learning things about the character and being of God, what should we do with those things as we're reading and learning? We should praise God for those things. Makes sense, right? Reading about the greatness and wisdom of God, just pause and say, oh God, I praise you. You are so wise. You are so good. If we're learning something about what it means to be a creature or a sinner, we should not just sit there and go, well, I'm glad I never do that. We should stop and say, but for your grace, I could have done that. Or actually, yesterday, I did do that. I'm sorry. This is a problem for me, too. Forgive me. Um, it's, it's easy, isn't it, for us to go, thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. But we don't want to do that. If we're learning something about Jesus, we should just stop and thank God. Thank you for the work of Christ. And if we're learning something about what it means to be a part of the church or a believing Christian, we should stop and ask God, help me in Christ, by the power of your spirit, united to Jesus, to live in this way that you commanded. That's how you take those three basic principles and build this compass. Now, I know we are almost at the hour, but let me just walk you through the bottom part here. How do you actually use this day to day? You're sitting down with your Bible. You've got, you've got one of these maybe stuck in your Bible case. How should you actually use this? Well, first step is as you're reading whatever passage of Scripture you're in, Ask yourself, which of the four main questions like most obviously springs to mind? Like, what am I seeing most quickly? And then try to answer that question. What is it teaching me about God? Or what is it teaching me about man? Think about that question. That's the first step. And then after answering that first question, use those arrows, follow the lines of connections, and try to answer all the other three. So that by the time you're done, you have an answer to all four questions. And again, if you've got an hour, you can spend a lot of time with this, right? If you've got 10 minutes, not going to be as much time. But by disciplining yourself to ask these four questions of every text, using the gospel to make those lines of connections, you're always going to read the Bible as good news. Isn't that the goal? Isn't the, isn't the Bible about the gospel, the good news? 
So you try to answer all the questions, starting with one, following the lines. And then just some other things to remember. Remember, because Jesus is united with his people, you can find Jesus even in the Old Testament. Where his people are, he is there, even if he's not mentioned. And even this is sometimes tricky. People will say, well, what about the passages like in the Psalms where David is confessing sin? Is Jesus there? Yes and no. He's not there in the sense that he committed any sin because Jesus never committed sin. But what were the sins for which Jesus died? The sins that are being confessed. And so even when you are seeing the sins of God's people, you are seeing the sins for which Jesus died. When you are seeing the laments of God's people, you are, you are seeing the, the feelings that Jesus took as well, lamenting for us. Right? Psalm 22, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's not just something the church can pray under persecution. That's not just something the believer can pray when they are suffering. It are the words that Jesus prayed where? On the cross. And so you can learn to read the, all passages of Scripture through like a trifocal lens. Where's the body? Where's the members? Where's Christ? And now, because, you know, this is, this is a little more advanced, the next thing you always want to do is make sure you compare your results to the overall teaching of Scripture. So as I'm learning things about, as I'm reading Scripture and seeing these things, I should ask myself, okay, sanity check. Is what I'm learning, does it, does it line up with, like, the Apostles' Creed or the Shorter Catechism? So it's like a safety valve, just to make sure you're staying within the fences. And then, always, don't stop with just reading. Turn what you're reading into prayer. Let the details take you to the doctrines and let them take you to love for God and love for neighbor. Uh, I wish we had time today to go through a couple examples. We had a lot of fun at Light of the Nations the other week doing this together. But do you get the big idea? Does it make sense? I hope this is an encouragement to you. It's a way of reading Scripture that comes from the Bible itself. And what I love about this approach is that it's simple enough you know, with a half hour, you could teach this to a brand new convert. But as we continue to grow in Christ and our knowledge of the Bible grows, this same pr you can still use the same grid and just deepen it and, and grow stronger in it. This is, Augustine wrote these things. I mean, he didn't draw this picture. That's me. But Augustine, these principles that he taught, he used his entire ministry. And he is one of the greatest exegetes of Scripture that, that has ever lived. And so the principles will scale. Simple enough for a new believer, robust enough, stretchable enough, deep enough for our whole Christian life. So, sorry we had to kind of sprint through that, but I wanted to share that with you. Um, let me close us in prayer. Our God, we are so thankful to you for the Word of God. We are so thankful that it is accessible, not just to those of us who have had the opportunity to, to study at a higher level, but for all of us, just using the principles that your Word itself teaches Help us, Lord, to, to dig into this, to be encouraged. Help us to read our Bibles with a new level of excitement, knowing that we can understand it. And help us by your Spirit. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things out of your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you all.